there's only so many auction houses out there that are available, and so having one of those gives you a level of prestige that other acquisitions simply can't. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, the major fall art auctions are taking place around New York, selling what is likely to be a billion dollars worth of art in what can be seen as the equivalent of the World Series of the art market. The only problem is, it's a snooze. The masterpieces are scarce, there are few surprises, and everything is solid, stable, and for observers like us, pretty boring. That's why this week we're not going to talk about the auctions themselves, but instead we're going to talk about an actually fascinating story unfolding behind the scenes at Sotheby's, one of the world's biggest auction houses, which just last month finalized a stunning $3.7 billion sale to one Patrick Drahi. So who is Patrick Drahi? The thing is, nobody really knows. He's kind of an international man of mystery, a Moroccan-born media and telecom billionaire who lives in Switzerland and has citizenship in France, Portugal, and Israel, Drahi has spent a fortune over the past two decades amassing a global media empire. This includes a cable news station in Israel that he founded as a counterpoint to Al Jazeera, Cheddar, a digital-first financial news channel targeted at millennials, and a whole slew of mobile and cable companies, including Cablevision, which are all grouped under his companies Altice and Altice USA. It's all very complicated, but what really drove it home for me is that I actually am a customer of Patrick Drahi's because I am a subscriber to Optum Cable for my Wi-Fi, and that's one of the companies that he owns. So he's not that mysterious after all, or is he? To talk about Patrick Drahi and his plans for Sotheby's, I'm joined by Artnet business reporter Tim Schneider, the author of our weekly Gray Market column, and also, if I'm not mistaken, a fellow Optimum customer. It's true. So, Tim, in brief... Aside from Optimum, what do we know about Patrick Drahi's history as a businessman to date? Well, let's start off on the big picture. So Forbes lists Drahi right now as the 190th richest person in the world with a fortune of about $9.4 billion. And you mentioned that he is a telecom magnate, and that's really the area that he's spent his entire career in. He originally started working for the Philips Group back in 1988 in international marketing for their cable and satellite division. He then spent about six years or so working in various telecom roles, primarily developing cable networks throughout Europe and even into Beijing. Then he founded his first cable companies in France in 94, 95. Those got bought by a larger provider. He worked for them for a few years, and then he launched Altice in Europe in 2001. And then after Altice, that's when he really goes on this spree that has to some extent, defined how people think of him as a businessman. And that spree that I'm referring to is that he has now developed a reputation for really aggressively expanding by buying up competitors, using a lot of leverage. And then once he gets those companies, he surrounds himself with his most trusted confidants, and then he just cuts costs to the bone. French labor unions have actually nicknamed him the cost killer. Uh Uh-oh. And... Members of the French press at one point also accused him of, and I quote, having acquisitions bulimia. Wow. So in case that's not crystal clear, the idea being that he just goes out and acquires as much as he possibly can. That's more than maybe you look at the balance sheets should be recommended. But so far, Drahi's managed to develop 
fortune. And no matter what you think of his tactics, he has been undeniably successful. And now we in the art world are going to find out what he does with Sotheby's. So he sounds like a pretty brutally tough guy in some respects. What is he like as a human being? Well, we know a lot less about his personal life than we do about his business life. He's married. He has four children. He is alleged to have proposed to his now wife within an hour of meeting her at a college party in the 80s. And Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, also claims that he was flying in his four children from four different countries, or three different countries, I guess, to have family dinner with him in Geneva every Friday. So very family-oriented guy. There's really no scandals to speak of. He's not out there swashbuckling or trying to date celebrities or doing anything like that. He seems to be just very concentrated on the idea of building a really successful business. So do we know anything about his actual participation in the art world? Is he known in any respect previous to his purchase of Sotheby's as an art guy in any way? It seems to depend on who you ask. There are some sources within France who have claimed that he is primarily a collector of modern and impressionist works priced under $5 million. But then you have other people who say that he's very interested in contemporary works, so I'm not entirely sure how that squares. To go to a source that we in the art world are a little more familiar with, Brett Gorvey, who is one of the namesakes of Levy Gorvey, and of course was operating at the top of the auction world for several years at Christie's, when the news came through about Drahi acquiring Sotheby's back in June, Gorvey said something to the effect of, most people don't seem to know who he is. And I think that that's still largely true. Just a side anecdote here. One of our colleagues at Artnet was apparently at a dinner with some Sotheby's employees not that long ago. And they apparently thanked our colleague for the coverage that we had been doing of Drahi because they had found out more from us than they had found out from the company or Drahi himself at that point. Oh boy, that's telling. <laughs> um, Drahi has said a few things about his acquisition of Sotheby's. And after he bought it, he praised the company's celebrated history of uniting people all over the world through culture and arts, which is actually kind of a funny thing to say about an auction house which really exclusively unites wealthy sellers and wealthy buyers via high-priced luxury transactions. You're not talking about the Metropolitan Museum of Art here. Why do you think the auction business actually appeals to him? The sentiment that prevails right now seems to be that this is a trophy acquisition for him, that he essentially decided to buy Sotheby's because he could, and there's only so many auction houses out there that are available. And so having one of those gives you a level of prestige that other acquisitions simply can't. That said, I will mention that he has been a pretty staunch philanthropist of arts causes as well as science and education. So there is some track record there of a legitimate deeper down interest in the arts. But in terms of whether acquiring Sotheby's was more of a business move or more of a way of gaining notoriety, it's really difficult to say at this point. The auction business, as we both know, is a very low margin business. It's incredibly inefficient. It's very old fashioned. There's a lot of pageantry that's very expensive. What do you think are the opportunities for somebody like Drahi, who is this cost cutter, who is very bottom line focused? Well, he's already told investors when he was organizing financing for the deal to acquire Sotheby's that he does plan on 
severely scaling back costs. So that's definitely a part of it. And he must believe that he's got some kind of significant path to better profitability just through doing that. One of the other elements that people are speculating about is because of his background in telecom, that he could be trying to do something that in some way leverages the idea of Sotheby's almost more as a media company than as a strict sales venue. How exactly that ends up transpiring or what that looks like, I think is a very good question, but it's at least something that people are talking about as a possibility. It's so funny because this is not the first time that there has been a kind of an equivalence made between auction houses and media companies. Steve Murphy, who was the previous CEO of Christie's, actually came to that job from Rodale, where he spent a decade running Men's Health Magazine, Runner's World, the South Beach Diet. Why do you think there is this idea that media experts are well-primed to deal with an auction house? Well, I think that what it probably speaks to is a recognition on the part of business people that the way the art business can get to a higher level of profitability is through scale. And obviously, media companies are all about achieving scale. That's why we have the term mass media. The more people that you are able to access, the broader your reach, the higher your profits are going to be, all those kinds of things. So I think that just on an intuitive level, that makes some sense. And of course, we should also note here that Tad Smith, who just recently stepped down as CEO of Sotheby's after the Drahi deal was complete, he also used to have a background in media. He was the former president of Cablevision before he became the president and CEO of the Madison Square Garden Company. And then he was hired to come in and take over at Sotheby's. The question ultimately there ends up being, is this one of those things that people just keep seeing and not being able to execute on? Or is there really something there? It kind of reminds me of how back in the day, Colin Farrell, can't remember who he told this to, but he kept getting these roles. And every time he got a review, people would be like, you know, he's not really that good an actor. And Farrell told this interviewer, people keep hiring me because they keep thinking, maybe this is the point where it'll finally click for him. And I don't know if that's happening too with some of this media slash auction house thinking. But it's a possibility. Speaking of Tad Smith, for years, it seemed that the main strategy at both Sotheby's and Christie's was pretty much just to beat the other guy. Who could get the best lots? Who could get the biggest prices? But under Tad Smith, the company seemed to step away from merely trying to unseat Christie's as the market leader and instead to build new businesses that could help differentiate it from Christie's. How would you explain the strategy there? So when you look back on Smith's tenure at Sotheby's, the first thing that most people fixate on is, and there's, there's some poetic justice in this if we think back to the infamous acquisitions bulimia comment about Drahi. Smith, between about 2016 and 2018, went on a pretty historic run of acquiring companies. And specifically companies that didn't necessarily have an extremely direct relationship to what we would normally think of an auction house doing. So the first acquisition that he made was of the boutique advisory firm Art Agency Partners back in February of 2016. And that was a, a much talked about deal, A, because an auction house was going out and essentially acquiring a set of advisors who, in theory, are doing some of the same things that their own specialists are doing. And also because it was a big money deal. 
the price that was paid ultimately for AAP was $85 million. And that was based on all these performance incentives that they ultimately ended up hitting. But the combination of this lateral move almost in terms of bringing in more expertise and the high dollar amount paid for it made the acquisition something that really made a lot of people sit up straight in their chairs and take notice. Now, from there, Smith went on to acquire entities like Orion Analytical, which is a company that does forensic analysis of artworks. So doing things like checking the age of the paint on a work that maybe you're wondering whether or not it's a fake. He also acquired the May Moses Art Indices, which are a set of art market analytics tools, primarily focused on works that have been sold multiple times at auctions. He bought a machine learning startup called Thread Genius, which is based on the idea of being able to create a recommendations engine for artworks and objects of design. And so it's just buying all these companies that you don't necessarily have a very clear vision of how they fit together. They sound sexy in a lot of different ways, but whether or not they add up to anything is a gamble on a very different vision of what an auction house is, ultimately. Because we're used to this idea of auction houses being, as you said earlier, these marketplaces, essentially, where their job is to bring together buyers and sellers as often as they can, at the highest prices they can, and try to turn a profit that way. What Smith did with this acquisition spree, it seemed, was to really accelerate this trend that we've seen, not only in the auction world, but also in the gallery world where you have these major players trying to turn themselves into these 360-degree art services firms. They're no longer just selling and buying artworks. They can advise you. They can even use data to advise you. They can make recommendations about what else you might like. They can assuage your concerns about the authenticity of the works that you have. What it ultimately does is to turn Sotheby's, or at least the goal would be, to turn Sotheby's into a one-stop shop where clients no longer have to say, well, I can buy and sell with Sotheby's, but then I have to go somewhere else to do all these other things. Instead, Sotheby's can be the one and only place that you have to go in order to have all of your art needs fulfilled. And that's a pretty major change of pace in terms of what we have traditionally thought of auction houses being. So how would you rate the Tad Smith era at Sotheby's? Where is it now at the beginning of the, the Drahi era, so to speak? It really depends on what lens you want to view it through. You mentioned Drahi bought the company for $3.7 billion, which equated to $57 a share, which is pretty near Sotheby's all-time stock price. And it was not trading anywhere near that at the point when they struck the deal. It was actually, I think, at about $34 and change the Friday before the deal was announced. So to go from that to 57 is a huge, huge jump. So if you just want to look at it through that very specific lens, then I think there's an argument that Smith did a pretty good job. And that would be an explanation for why he left with $28 million in executive compensation. If you want to look at it through a different lens, though, I think there is a very real question as to how valuable his time at the helm really was. To go back to the stock price, not to say that this is the be-all, end-all of what a company is, but if you look at where Sotheby's was trading when Smith came in in March of 2015, and where it ended up right before the deal was announced, the stock was down about 15%. And then when you add in this idea that they've acquired all these different businesses that sound interesting, but may or may not actually fit together into anything coherent, 
it certainly raises more questions about the legitimacy of what he was doing. Now, in his defense, it doesn't seem like many of those entities that he acquired cost a whole hell of a lot of money. And he did a really good job of amping up their private sales division. He made that a focus. And they went from doing about $580 million in private sales in 2016 to doing over a billion in 2018, which is a massive jump. So the best I can say is that it's a mixed bag. I would probably lean a little bit more towards the negative unless I'm looking at it through an absolute mercenary perspective of, hey guys, let's hire somebody who is going to be able to convince a mysterious French-Israeli telecom billionaire to pay a high price for this thing in a few years. Like, if that's what we did, then Tad Smith is an absolute champion. Bullseye. Yeah, exactly. Beyond that, I'm less optimistic, I think. So the big deal about this deal, so to speak, is that it's taking Sotheby's, which has been traded on the public markets for the last 31 years, and taking it private. So what does this mean for Sotheby's and what does it mean for the buyers and sellers who transact through it? I don't think it really means that much in terms of the actual business of buying and selling artwork. I don't think that the client experience is going to be tremendously different than what it was. The people that it matters to more are the people who are on the outside. As you and I know, we in the business of analyzing the art market have relatively few data points, at least in comparison to other industries. And we're trying to gauge somebody's performance or the performance of the market overall. And Sotheby's as a public company that was legally required to make a number of very detailed disclosures about their company's performance, they were really a bright spot in terms of transparency. And so the idea that that bright spot is now going to turn into a blind spot by virtue of it being taken private again, certainly looks like a real blow to the general understanding of what's happening in the art market. On the other side, though, I will say that Sotheby's value as a bastion of transparency, I think, was probably overrated. There were certainly things that it was helpful to know and valuable to know, but there were also a lot of things that we really didn't find out from their SEC filings. We didn't know anything really about who was making the financial guarantees that we have spent a lot of time wringing our hands about in the art market. The filings weren't telling us who was actually buying and selling the thousands of works that they offer every year. You were really mostly finding out about the guts of the company, profits and losses, debt, things like that. And again, it's not nothing, but I don't think that it's a tremendous, tremendous loss on the merits, other than just this principle of here was one reliable source of information that we had in a field that is sorely lacking in exactly those types of things. And now that one reliable source that we had is gone. In typical Drahi fashion, this was a pretty highly leveraged purchase. What do you think the arrival of the cost killer is going to mean for the people who actually work at Sotheby's? So the first thing that comes to mind is that when my colleague Eileen Kinsella and I were digging up information about Drahi's business history, there was an anecdote that was related by this website called the Leaders League, which bills itself as essentially a ratings agency and news organization on top international executives. 
And this website talked about how when Drahi bought a French telecom company called SFR in 2014, shortly afterwards, employees started complaining about the fact that suddenly copy paper was really difficult to find and even more aggravating than that, toilet paper was apparently in short supply. So going back to the cost killer idea, if Drahi is the type of person who is willing to go that deep into cutting costs that you have to be worried about toilet paper rationing, then I think that employees at Sotheby's should certainly be concerned about the day-to-day experience of working at the company. I mean, anytime a new owner takes over at your company, I would say it's good advice to watch your ass, but apparently Drahi makes that literal. (laughs) That is a very good one. He has in his early addresses to the company. He's pledged not to have layoffs, which of course I think we've heard before. Didn't he tell that to one of his French acquisitions a couple of years before there were massive layoffs over there? He has actually done this a couple of different times. SFR, the company that I just talked about before, when he acquired them, he made a pledge that he was not going to lay off any workers for three years. And technically speaking, he held to that pledge. He didn't lay anybody off during that time. However, as soon as those three years were up, he started cutting jobs. And the workforce there now is only two-thirds the size of what it was. He cut about 5,000 jobs in the course of a couple of years. He's also currently, to my knowledge, at least still engaged in a lawsuit with the Dolan family, who he bought Cablevision from. Because as a part of that acquisition, he also acquired a consortium of local TV stations that are referred to as News 12. And part of that contract said that he was going to protect hundreds of jobs of News 12 staffers. And that allegedly did not happen. A bunch of jobs did end up getting cut. The Dolans sued him for breach of contract. And they've been advised to settle out of court by a judge. But again, as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. So I would put it this way. Just because Patrick Drahi comes in today and says, don't worry about layoffs, I don't know that I would take that to heart as something that I can really bank on for my long-term future. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That doesn't sound so great for the good people at Sotheby's. Do you think this is the end of Drahi's buying spree in the art business? Or do you see this as potentially the first in a series that could build out something comparable to the kinds of fully vertically integrated operations that he has uh, built in the telecom industry? I think the question there is, what else would he actually be able to acquire to really increase that level of vertical integration? How much of a parallel is there between a telecom way of doing business and an art way of doing business? Could they go out and start buying up art media properties? I guess. I don't really know what that's going to do for them, to be honest. I would like to pretend that what you and I say every day has some kind of impact on the business, but I don't think it has enough of an impact that Patrick Drahi is going to come in and be like, hey, you guys get over here. Here's a check. (laughs) (laughs) Any case, it seems as if this is going to be a very interesting chapter to keep following at Sotheby's. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. Thanks very much, Tim, for joining me. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider, double duty over there, and Caroline Goldstein, and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Hold up. 